Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our short series from James Jordan, critiquing theonomy from a theocratic point of view. We hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan giving his third talk on theonomy. Talking about the subject we were on before, uh, when we stopped, the distinction between judicial and moral law. In some sense, we can clearly distinguish between that aspect of the law that calls upon human beings to inflict punishments and that aspect of the law that indicates what God is and is not pleased with in human behavior. And throughout church history, that distinction has been made. It's made in the Westminster Confession, and Bonson wants to eliminate that distinction. At that point, his view is a departure from the tradition, and I think it can be challenged and should be. On page 99 of his book, we see an instance of how he confuses the judicial penal sanctions with the moral commands. And this is important because Bonson's argument for his position looks stronger than it is because of this. He says, well, all the jots and tittles of the case laws are binding. The nations outside of Israel were supposed to enforce the same penalties. The new covenant were supposed to enforce the same penalties. And then he runs through a whole bunch of instances where specific case laws were enforced where parts outside the Decalogue are appealed to but none of them have to do with penalties. And so it becomes more difficult. For instance, on page 99, he does one, that's it. Jesus warned against dismissing even the least Old Testament commandment, Matthew 5:19. True, I would say, but questionable exactly how that applies to us. I'd rather go to Timothy, which he does. Paul taught that every Old Testament scripture instructs us in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3:16-17. I think that's we're on real safe ground with that verse. Not a single law, word, or stroke can be violated with impunity. James 2.10, Matthew 4.4, Matthew 5.18. Well, these are the ones that say, you know, respect the whole law. But the problem is, in the New Covenant, we do violate all kinds of specific laws, like planting your crops and wearing garments of mixed cloth. So that doesn't help us any. In endorsing the Old Testament law, the New Testament never stops to make special exception for the judicial laws. True, but that's an argument from silence. Indeed, when Jesus summarized the entire law, he quoted not just from the Ten Commandments, but from two laws about love outside the Decalogue. Love God and love your neighbor, Deuteronomy 5.6, Leviticus 19.18. True, but those aren't judicial laws. They're just moral laws. Laws outside the Decalogue were quoted as on a par with the Ten Commandments. Mark 10.19. You know, the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, which is not one of the big ten, honor your father and mother. True, but do not defraud is not a judicial law. It's not a penal sanction, it's a moral law. Even the lighter demands of the law were not to be left undone, said Jesus. Luke 11.42 Luke 11.42 says... Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, yet you disregard justice and the love of God, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. True, but the command to tithe is not a judicial law. It's not a command to punish anybody. 
Consequently, Jesus condemned even the setting aside of the death penalty for incorrigible children, Matthew 15, 4 and 5. This is the one place where he has a good case. Matthew 15, 4, For God said, Honor your father and mother. He who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother anything of mine by which you might have been helped has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and mother. And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You might make a case. Greg is arguing here, or asserting, that this implies that Jesus is upholding the death penalty aspect of that. Maybe, maybe not. One could argue that. And we would want to see a debate back and forth on that before we're totally sure of what that passage applies to. All right, but that's one place. Then he says, Paul appealed to the extra decalogical prohibition against incest. 1 Corinthians 5.1 It's true, incest is prohibited outside the Ten Commandments, but that's not a judicial law. The judicial law, part of it would be the punishment for incest, and that's not referred to in 1 Corinthians 5.1. The case law against homosexuality is upheld in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9.9, 9, 1 Timothy 5.18. Right? It's not judicial law. James applied the judicial law about prompt payment of one's employees. James 5.4. Okay, let's see if we would count that as a judicial law or just as a moral law. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed against your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Okay, they should pay their laborers. But this doesn't have to do with the penal sanction. So it's not what's usually meant by judicial law. Okay, it's not part of the penal sanctions or the governmental system of Israel, which is what's usually meant by judicial law. Bonson is equivocating on these words and looks like he has a stronger argument than he does. The important New Testament injunction about not avenging yourself, about going to an offended brother and caring for one's enemies are all taken from the judicial laws of the Old Testament. Well, they're not. A law about not avenging yourself and going to an offending brother and caring for one's enemies, that's not judicial law. What the Westminster Confession would mean by judicial law, God gave to them sundry laws as a body politic. That's not body politic laws, that's neighborliness laws, moral laws. You see, the New Testament cites the judicial laws of the Old Testament too often and without apology or disclaimer to accept at face value the bald claim of theonomic critics that these laws have been abolished by the work of Jesus Christ or the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't think we have to take sides on that. The point is, it doesn't show that judicial laws, what we think of as judicial laws, the system of government, the system of penalties, is being quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament and applied. They're not. Finally, under this question of moral and judicial laws, I'm not sure that I agree or think that Bonson shows that he understands the penal codes as well as he might, or at least I'm not satisfied with the way he discusses it. And an example is on page 251. The reason why the penal code, now he's talking about what we would usually mean by judicial law, the reason why the penal code is not adapted in its application in the same way that the ceremonial law is adapted should be initially obvious. The penal code is not ceremonial redemptive in nature. Well, I'm not sure that I am happy with that. Because the fact of the matter is that our redemption is explicitly in terms of Jesus Christ coming under the penal sanctions of the law. I mean, the penal sanctions have to do with the penalties for sin 
and so do the ceremonial laws. And there is an obvious connection between putting an animal to death for sin and putting a person to death for sin. I mean, we don't have to make some big case for that. That can be seen real quick. And obviously the death of Jesus on the cross for sin is an instance of capital punishment that's related to the ceremonial and to the penal laws. Now that doesn't prove that the penal laws have gone away because the ceremonial ones do, but it indicates that there's a dimension of things here that Greg doesn't seem to be very sensitive to. And one could argue, you see, that the penal code is adapted in its application because of its relationship to the ceremonial law. I'm not sure that you can make a case for that out of the Old Testament, but at least prima facie, it's not obviously wrong. So I don't know that Greg has really come to grips as well as he should with the nature of the penal code and how it relates to theology, the death of Christ, and to the killing of animals in the ceremonial law. It's another difficulty with the way that his system is set out. Well, my point there, and let me just say, you know, I hate to do this, but time flies. I've tried to argue that point in more detail in the death penalty in the Mosaic Law paper. I think there's pervasively threefold dimension of the law in the Old Testament. If you look at the tabernacle, there are three things in it. There's a rod of government, there's the tables of the law, and there is the sacramental dimension. And you'll see the governmental, sacramental, and moral dimension repeated many times in the law. Three dimensions, governmental, sacramental, and moral. In other words, judicial, ceremonial, and moral. And that's pervasive. I think it reflects the triunity of God. The second person being associated with the word, the third person with the sacrament, and the first person with the person or government. And I think that's pervasive in the Bible. It's pervasive in the structure of the Mosaic Law. And so I think that when Bonson simply says there are two categories of law, ceremonial and moral, and we don't need to look at the governmental aspect as a separate dimension, he errs in his understanding of how the Mosaic Law is put out. But so much for that point. Now let me go back to point eight. Uh, What about the nations outside of Israel? Should they have kept the judicial laws? Should they have kept the penal laws? Well, yes and no. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, a passage that Bonson loves to quote in favor of theonomy and Poitras loves to quote against theonomy. Deuteronomy 4, 6, and 7. Let me read it theonomically. Talking about the statutes and judgments of the law. So guard them and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Boy, that's obvious. The nations are going to want to imitate the Mosaic Law because the laws given to Israel and the Israelite nation is a model for all the rest. Now let me read it anti-theonomically. So keep and do them, for this is your wisdom, this is your wisdom, and your understanding in the sight of all the people who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as is Yahweh our God when we call on Him? Now, it's not much I can do with my voice to make the difference, but did you hear it anti-theonomically that way? What great nation has the Lord? None. If the other nations convert, are they going to have a tabernacle in their midst? No. Are they called to be nations of priests? No. Are they given all these privileges? No. Book of Romans says, what difference does it make to be a Jew? Much in every way. To them were committed the oracles of God. To them were the fathers and this, that, and the other. 
wasn't true of the Ninevites when Jonah converted them. They were God-fearing Gentiles. They didn't have a God as near. You see, the ordinary Israelite was not as near as the Aaronic priests. And the converted God-fearing Gentile was not as near as an Israelite. It's part of that sacred geography in the Old Testament. So you see, you can look at this either way. Now there you've got the continuity and the discontinuity. Should the nations have studied the law and emulated its wisdom and changed their laws once they understood what it implied, once they saw what God required of them and they were bound to do it because it was clear to them, because God made it clear as the Holy Spirit worked with their mind and they studied the Word, were they supposed to do that? Sure. But could they have ever done exactly what it said? Not in its totality, no. You know, you can build tabernacles all day long, but unless fire comes out from heaven to start the fire on the altar, it's just an empty place. And that is only going to happen once because there's only going to be one sanctuary on the earth until the new covenant, which things change now wherever two or three are gathered. The Shekinah is in the midst. So, that's a little bit difficult. Now, I think one aspect of this is to understand a little bit better the purpose of Israel in the ancient world and what they were called to do and set aside to do, and it may influence how we approach some of the laws. Some. I'm going to get down to some of the nitty-gritty here in a while. But the issue here is hermeneutics. The issue is how do we approach. And one of the things that is not enough taken notice of in the theonomic literature are the other covenants in the Old Testament. Not much is done with the Davidic period. Not much is done with the remnant period. Not much is done with the restoration period. And not much is done with the Noahic covenant. In the Noahic covenant, we have establishment of human government where the sword is given for the judgment by men of sinners in a judicial sense. And that's given to all the nations that come from Noah. And in Genesis chapter 10, we have all those nations. And in Genesis chapter 11, we have the fall of the Noahic covenant at the Tower of Babel. And it's in the context of the Tower of Babel that Israel is called. And the call of Israel is never separated from the Babelic context. You cannot read the history of Israel in the Old Testament as if it was isolated. And everybody that was converted was to be part of Israel. It was never intended that way. Israel always exists in the context of the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel. She is one special nation in their midst whose task is to minister to them and to bring many to the worship of God as Gentile God-fearers. And so in the law, repeatedly, there are statements in the law about the stranger, the uncircumcised Gentile God-fearing convert who wants to worship God. If the uncircumcised Gentile convert wants to offer sacrifice, can he do so? Yes, says Numbers 15. He offers in the same way as an Israelite. Does he come to the Feast of Tabernacles? Yes. Can he come to Passover? No. Not unless he is circumcised and becomes a Jew. Then come to the other feasts. Even in the Psalms, there's reference to the Gentile God-fearers praising God. Is it Psalm 115, as I recall? O you house of Aaron, praise the Lord. O house of Israel, praise the Lord. O you God-fearers, praise the Lord. When we get down to the New Testament, we have them. We have them showing up around the edges of Israel throughout the Old Testament. The Queen of Sheba, Obadiah, the servant of Ahab, apparently is a Gentile God-fearer, and many others. Uriah the Hittite, not a Jew, married to a Jewish woman the granddaughter of Ahithophel. So there is a difference between Israel and the nations, and part of that difference is how near they are to God. 
Now, one of the principles in the law is the nearer you are to God, the stricter the rules are. So, if you're Moses and you just raise your stick up and hit a rock when God tells you not to, you don't get to go in the promised land. And meanwhile, all these other million people, half of whom have committed adultery and repented of it, they get to go in. But you, because you struck a rock, and even after you repent, you don't get to go in. Because you're nearer. You've got to go up to the top of Mount Sinai into the cloud. If you're the high priest, you've got to marry a girl in her virginity. If she dies, you can't mourn. If you're an ordinary priest, you have to marry a virgin or a widow, but not a divorcee. If she dies, you can mourn for her, but you can't mourn for your relatives. If you're a Levite, you can mourn for your relatives, but not for other people. You're under these rules. Now, in terms of this, is it possible that because of the calling of Israel, some of the punishments on them were stricter than the other nations because they had greater privileges? Can we entertain that option? I think we have to entertain that option. Now, maybe when we get in and look at it, we'll find that won't make much difference. But maybe it will make a difference on some points. I think one point is the death penalty for Sabbath breaking, which is the one death penalty that nobody in the history of the church has ever maintained, or almost nobody has. It's the one that's hardest to establish. Almost everybody believes in a death penalty for murder. Almost nobody believes in a death penalty for Sabbath breaking. And then in between are all these others, like apostasy and adultery and other things that are in the law. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But, you see, the death penalty for Sabbath breaking was to stoke up your hearth fire on the day God's hearth fire was supposed to be stoked up. Well, probably the nations wouldn't have bothered with that because God's hearth fire wasn't in their midst, so it wouldn't have applied to them in the same way. Resting and worshiping on the Sabbath day would not have had that other implication involved with it, as I understand that law. So, can we entertain this? Yes, I think we need to entertain the possibility that some of the penalties in Israel were stricter because of their greater privilege and has to do with the sacred geography of the Old Testament it doesn't apply in the New Testament we don't have laws of sacred geography in the New Testament everybody's equally near if you're in Christ, you're in Christ you're right next to the Father's throne there are no degrees of nearness there are no stages of Christianity there's no second blessing there's no confirmation there's no carnal Christian, spiritual Christian distinction they're backsliders But there's no category distinction between how near you are to God. If you're in Christ, you're at the Father's right hand. If you're not there, you're out. In the Old Testament, there were all these degrees. Now, if your daughter committed the harlot in her father's house and then got married under false pretenses, she was to be put to death. But if a priest's daughter committed harlotry in her father's house, she was to be put to death and her body was to be burned up. That's more severe because the people were closer to God. So... It's possible that some of these penalties have to do with the nearness to God. Talk about restitution just for a second. And this is all under the category of nations outside of Israel, but the question is, were the nations outside of Israel supposed to adopt exactly the same penalties as Israel? And I'm not sure they were. Probably in most cases they would have. But what about this one? Deuteronomy 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, He shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now, skip down to verse 4. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Double restitution for theft makes a lot of sense. I think if I was a nation outside Israel, I'd say, boy, that makes a lot of sense. I read to you earlier 
the code of Hammurabi, and it's uh, 30-fold if you rob from a patrician. Now, if you rob from a commoner, it was only about 15-fold, and if you steal from a slave, well, tough luck for the slave. But in Israel, all men were equal, and that's a principle we can buy. Obvious establishment for the nations roundabout. What system is there like this? And double restitution. But how about fourfold for the sheep and fivefold for the ox? Now, there's nothing in this passage that says why. If you steal an ox and slaughter it or sell it, in other words, get rid of it so you can't get it back, it's five for the ox and four for the sheep. And it doesn't say why. We've got to figure out why. And there are a lot of suggestions. My suggestion is that those two animals are segregated because God owns part of them and they're in the sacrificial system. And in the sacrificial system, an ox has more weight than a sheep. If you steal and slaughter an ox, you're stealing from God as well as from the farmer, herdsman. If you steal a sheep, you're stealing from God as well as from the shepherd. And so the restitution is more severe. Would a nation outside of Israel have had fivefold for the ox and four for the sheep because they did not have the same sacrificial system? If my interpretation is right, probably not. Probably would have just been plain old double restitution for the nations outside of Israel. If my interpretation is wrong and there's some other rationale for this, maybe right. Some things, it's not hard to see how a nation would imitate. Now, what I've just done is, in a sense, I have presumed continuity and applicability, except where there's a reason not to. Double restitution looks good. We presume that a nation outside Israel would copy it. Four and five restitution, suddenly a bell goes off and says, what is this? We study it and we're not sure. Death penalties. We can basically break the death penalties down into four groups. The penalties for violence, that is murder, which is established in the Noahic Covenant. And in the Old Testament, in Numbers 35, it says you will never take ransom for a murderer. Throughout church history, the death penalty for murder has been clear throughout most of the branches of the church, throughout almost all the ages of the church. So we're on pretty good ground there. Now, I have no difficulties with it. The death penalties for sexual crimes... A little bit less obvious. Mostly, the church has maintained the death penalty for sexual crimes. Hodge did. Hodge maintained death penalty for adultery. Dabney did. And we'll talk about this if we have time in a little while. There doesn't seem to be any reason why a nation outside of Israel, the special holiness of Israel, special privilege, would make any difference there in that area. There doesn't seem to be anything in the New Covenant that would make any difference there. And if our assumption is that all Scripture is applicable for instruction in righteousness, it would seem that that's one that why we've been making the adjustment in it. Death penalties for religious crimes is much more of a problem. Seldom in church history has there been an insistence on putting people to death for apostasy and some of the other things that you find in the law. That begins to look much more like a death penalty that's enforced because of the special position and privilege of Israel. Now, maybe there's more to it than that, but at least in terms of the system we're looking at here, it's easier to see why that would be more debatable. Plus, when we get into the New Testament, and I'll talk about this in a little while, and the keys of the kingdom are given back to the church, and church discipline receives so much more emphasis than in the old, you begin to ask the question, maybe those kinds of things are supposed to be handled by the church and not by the state. And then finally, you have the death penalty for Sabbath breaking, which the church is almost never instituted and required because it's very difficult to see how that would apply outside the specific context of the Mosaic Covenant, Old Testament, Old Covenant. So 
again, I think that the process of reasoning whereby we apply these things is more complex than what theonomy gives us. Theonomy just says, well, if it's not a ceremonial law, it's still in force. Judicial laws are no different from moral laws in this regard. There are other factors that need to be brought in, which Bonson might admit to, but he hasn't admitted to yet. Finally, in bringing something of a critique to the Bonson theonomic position, and this is number nine, there are specific errors that run through this book that suggest that Bonson doesn't know the content of the Old Testament law as well as he should, and call into question how accurately he's assessed it, and whether if you don't really know what it says and you haven't come to grips with how it's put together very well, maybe you haven't understood how it ought to be applied very well. Let me give you three of the, I think, rather glaring instances. Repeatedly in the course of this book, he refers to the fact that in the Mosaic Law, rape was punished by death. The fact is, in the Mosaic Law, rape is not punished by death. And that's one of the curious and rather more difficult things for us emotionally and in terms of trying to figure out the equity of this system is to understand why it's not. Deuteronomy 22, verse 28. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they're discovered, the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 pieces of silver. She shall become his wife because he's violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Now, there's other passage that says if the father doesn't want him as a son-in-law, then he just takes the 50 shekels of silver and gives her to someone else later on. And that becomes part of her dowry. But that's not the death penalty for rape. Now, I think that you could probably argue the death penalty for rape and say this is more like date rape here. And it's not really contemplating the modern rape situation where people just break into homes and rape without knowing the other person and all the rest. But the fact is the Bible doesn't say death penalty for rape. And when Bonson repeatedly in this book refers to the death penalty for rape, he's wrong. A second is, repeatedly in here, and the theonomists do this all the time, they say, well, if you don't have a presumption of continuity from the Mosaic law, what are you going to do about bestiality? The New Testament doesn't say anything about bestiality. The only place it does is in the Mosaic Law. So how are you ever going to know that bestiality is wrong and that incest is wrong unless you go to the Mosaic Law? It's only in Moses. It's not mentioned in the New Testament. Incest is, one form of it is, but not bestiality. I think that's a failure to understand something that's in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis chapter 2. You don't need the Mosaic Law to exclude bestiality. Genesis chapter 2 says, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him helper suitable for him. And God brought all the animals to Adam and he named them, but there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so God fashioned a woman for him. And the man said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, what does that establish? Establishes bestiality is not appropriate. The beasts are not helper suitable. It excludes bestiality. It excludes incest because it says a man shall leave his father and mother in order to have sexual relations. It excludes polygamy because it says a man shall cleave to his wife and you can't cleave to two things. It excludes adultery because it says a man will cleave to his wife and only the two of them shall be one flesh. So you have by this passage as a creation ordinance the exclusion of bestiality and homosexuality. It's a woman, not a man that's made. Bestiality, homosexuality, incest, polygamy, and adultery are all excluded by Genesis 2. And that doesn't require you know, great sophistication to see that. 
All that's necessary is to see what God says is appropriate and what He says is clearly inappropriate by inference. So I don't think the argument that there's just nothing in the Bible that pertains to this until you get to Moses is wrong. A final specific thing where I think Boston does not show a good understanding of the content of biblical law is, again, his discussion of what constitutes a religious crime and a penalty for a religious crime. And I refer here to page 172 of the book No Other Standard, which is where we've been right along. And just a moment ago, I talked about death penalties for murder, for sexual crimes, for religious crimes, and which would be a different category. Now, Bonson says on page 172, because others have pointed this out as well, that maybe the religious crimes should be considered differently from the ones that pertain to the so-called second table of the law, the laws regarding neighbors. He says this, The very attempt to create a special category of, quote, religious, close quote, crimes is predicated upon a false antithesis. All offenses, including crimes, are religious in character. Murder and rape are offenses against the image of God, repudiate God's revealed authority, and indicate arrogant self-deification. Nielsen, his opponent, recognizes this. The suggestion that the religious category of sins is comprised of offenses, quote, relating to the divinely revealed means of worshiping the true God, close quote, is also of little utility. Any transgression of God's law is a failure to worship and serve God in the way that he demands, for all of life is concerned with glorifying and serving God. Nor does the common conception of religious worship as concerned with sacred ritual or practices directly, close quote, in quotes, directly related to a supernatural deity. Religious worship, that conception, does not help in distinguishing sins taken as religious from sins that are not. Well, that's just sidestepping the issue. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that there is a sacred sanctuary, that there are areas you don't trespass, that there is a special day. And so it's obvious that there are special religious categories of crimes. And to say all of life is religious doesn't say anything. We all know that there is a difference between having a conversation with somebody else and talking to God. We can say all of life is worship, but we know the difference between actually intentionally worshiping God and just doing other things to the glory of God. That's a clear distinction. And there's a clear distinction between the time of corporate worship and other times. And there's a clear distinction between the space where people gather and other spaces. And in the Old Testament, God sets up those times and God sets up those spaces. And if you encroach, this is one of the death penalties that cannot carry off into the New Testament, or it would be difficult to, and it's one of the primary death penalties. If you encroached upon a sacred thing, you're put to death. See, it says in Exodus 19, if anyone touches the mountain, they are to be put to death. Later on it says, you will not approach the altar, you will not go into the tabernacle. The Levites are set up around the tabernacle, they are armed, and they are to kill anybody who gets near the altar or tries to go into the tabernacle. Now that's the death penalty for encroaching on God's special space. Now, if you no longer have any special space like that and Jesus is in heaven, then you can't apply that in the New Testament. But you see, that's an obvious religious crime that is related to the separation of a special space. Now, if there is such a religious crime, obviously apostasy from the living God is a religious crime. A religious form of Sabbath breaking is a religious crime, as opposed to just keeping your shop open on the Sabbath day, which probably would have been penalized with fines or a beating. 
idolatry in public would be a religious crime. And common sense tells us that's different from other things. The fact that the first table of the law, our duties to God, are obviously different from our duties to our neighbor. So Bonson is trying very hard to use rhetoric to blur this distinction between religious crimes and other ones, but I think we have to just call his hand there and say, no, Greg, there is a distinction. Now, it may be that in a Christian theocracy we would punish these things. On the other hand, it may be that those laws relate to the special geography of Israel. It may be that the reason apostasy was punished by death in Israel is related to the fact that if you tried to get near the altar, you were put to death. And since in the New Testament that whole configuration has changed, so is the death penalty for religious crimes. There's one other that I should mention. Most expositors of the Old Testament, myself included, believe that except for murder, the death penalties were only maximums. And the reason for that is that in Numbers 35, verse 30, we read this, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to the city of refuge if he's guilty of death. You cannot take ransom for a murderer. Now, the fact that that said implies that you can take ransom for other capital offenses, that you can soften or mitigate the penalty of other capital offenses. And the proof of that is Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 passage that you know by heart. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now Deuteronomy 22 says if a girl is betrothed and plays the harlot in her father's house, she must be put to death and thus you will purge out Israel. It says Joseph, her husband, being soft-hearted and disobedient to the word of God, decided not to put her to death, but just divorce her. No, it doesn't say that. It says Joseph, being just, decided not to have her put to death as a public example, but just to divorce her privately. This is said to be a just action. Now, you know, Joseph doesn't believe at this point that Mary has just gotten pregnant by the Holy Ghost. And why in the world would he believe that? And he doesn't. God has to tell him later on in the next verse. Joseph figures she's made a mistake and she's gone crazy. Whatever reason he had in his mind, the Bible tells us it was just and righteous of him to ask for a lesser penalty. Now, Bonson in no other standard admits that this verse is in the Bible, but he rejects any inference from it. And I think that's a major flaw in understanding the system of laws itself in the Old Testament. And I'm going to argue that one of the ways that the Old Testament law becomes more attractive to us and more practical as biblical theocrats is that when we understand that only in the case of murder was a death penalty mandatory. And I think this softens the fearfulness of the theocratic position. Now, I want to close with some concluding observations. If you have concluding observations, you're obviously closing. And there are basically two, and this will get into what I would hope would be a way that, as a biblical theocrat, I can reconstruct the applicability of the Mosaic Law without falling into some of the difficulties that theonomy falls into, or theonomy with a capital T. First of all, should we presuppose continuity or discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants? at the point of the law. Do we approach this matter by saying, well, 
unless it's repeated in the New Testament, it's gone? Or do we approach the matter by saying, if it's not canceled in the New Testament, it's still in force? I just think that is a naive and unhelpful question. It's obvious that there is continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. Both in different areas. I believe that there is a radical discontinuity in the creation order of time and space, of sacred geography and sacred time, that would affect how we understand certain aspects of the Sabbath day and certain aspects of the space where people gather for worship. I think the New Testament indicates that. And that there is a radical discontinuity in the person and structure of persons between the two covenants. I didn't talk about this very much. We don't have a genealogical principle in the New Testament. The succession is spiritual and not fleshly. And we are no longer in the first Adam but in the last. I prefer to say, to discuss the applicability of the Old Testament. And I think a simple phrase would be, the entire Old Testament is applicable. And must be applied because it's the Word of God. We must seek proper applications of everything in the Old Testament. And we start with that as a foundation. We have everything we want. Now we just have to go to the details. We don't have to get into this continuity, discontinuity. Which do you presuppose? We presuppose applicability. And we know that. We can set aside the other question, I think, as unhelpful. The unhelpful question. Sometimes that's called in logic a complex question, a question that when you ask it, you try to answer it, all you do is get confused because the question itself destroys any possibility of a coherent answer. And I think that this business of it's not in force unless it's repeated or it is in force unless it's explicitly canceled, that just does not get you anywhere. I would much rather talk about applicability. Well, it does get you somewhere, but it doesn't get you where you need to get. What is clear then regarding the penal sanctions? What can we say for sure about the penal sanctions in the law? The death penalties for the seven or about dozen things that the Old Testament gives a death penalty for. You know what they are? In terms of the first commandment, there's a death penalty for encroaching on sacred space. The second is a death penalty for worshipping strange gods in public, apostasy. The third is the death penalty for open, high-handed blasphemy, that is, cursing God, not just saying GD or something in public, but something stronger than that. The fourth is the death penalty for Sabbath-breaking in a specific kind of religious ceremonial sense. In terms of the fifth commandment, there's a death penalty for assaulting parents and for contumacy against the courts. In terms of the sixth commandment, there's a death penalty for murder, for some forms of manslaughter and negligence. In terms of the Seventh Commandment, there's a death penalty for adultery, for concealed unchastity. There's a possible death penalty for rape, if it's rape of a married or betrothed woman. There's a death penalty for homosexual acts, for bestiality, for prostitution, for cross-generational incest. Not for marrying your sister now, but for being involved with a parent or being involved with a child. In terms of the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, there's a death penalty for kidnapping a human being. And in terms of the Ninth Commandment, there's a death penalty for perjury in a capital case. That's it. There aren't hundreds of death penalties in the law. Just a few. What's clear? What can we clearly say about these things as we speak to the world? First of all, that they reveal God's attitude toward these sins. They're serious. There's no doubt about that. We haven't compromised any of that by raising the questions we've raised today and yesterday. Second of all, it's clear that they apply to church discipline. Somebody does these things in the church, you've got to deal with it. That's clear. It's clear that the New Testament carries on all of this once we understand it. 
Third, since all Scripture applies to the civil government, all Scripture applies to the nations, there's a prima facie applicability of these things in the state. But now we have to ask, what did they say, and what does application mean? And there are really three degrees, you see, in these penal sanctions. Let's talk about homosexuality. Well, no such thing as homosexuality as a condition, really. There are only homosexual acts as far as the law is concerned, and I think we should emphasize that in counseling. The Bible speaks of acts, not orientations. And so we're not talking about homosexuals. We're talking about a person who commits a homosexual act is to be put to death. Now, that might mean that we criminalize homosexuality. It doesn't mean the death penalty necessarily. It might mean a public flogging or a fine or a jail term. That might be an implication. Or we might go further and say that we have the death penalty for committing a homosexual act. But we haven't completely followed out the law unless we have stoning for the committing of a homosexual act, right? So now, at what point do we make a distinction? Do we have to have stoning for it? And we say, well, we don't have to have stoning, but we've got to have the death penalty for it. Or do we say, well, we don't really have to have the death penalty for it, but it ought to be criminalized. Or do we say, it doesn't need to be criminalized, we can just leave it alone. Now the question is, at what point do you draw the line when you apply the Old Testament? And that is not always clear. Bonson says, all it means is death penalty. North says, it's got to be by stoning as well. Throughout most of Christian history, you would have had probably a death penalty or at least a criminalization for committing of a homosexual act. Now, to contextualize this, let me remind you, one of the things that makes people so nervous about theocracy is they think about the United States of America as a theocracy. In the Old Testament, this is small community law. The elders of the city are the ones who implement these things. The city has maybe 500 people in it or fewer. We're talking about the area of a precinct where people know each other, where if something's done, the nuances are there. And that allows the kind of flexibility that I think is implied in the law. You see, as I have written several books and studies of sections of the law, I'm more impressed that if we stop wrenching a law out of context, if a man lies with a man as with another man, you will put him to death. Okay, pull that out and it's clear. Put it back in and look at all the other things that the law says about how people are supposed to deal with each other. We get more flexibility. For instance... What would an Israelite court have done if two men came to the judges and said, for the past six years, we've been carrying on a homosexual relationship. And last week at the Feast of Tabernacles when the law was read, it just struck home to both of us that we shouldn't be doing this. And we cast ourselves on the mercy of the court. What would the judges in Israel have done? Now, according to Bonson, at this point in his development, they were required to put the man to death. My thinking is, I think if I'd have been a judge, I would have said, go and sin no more. I don't see in the Old Testament any necessity to enforce the penalty in every case. Because the Bible distinguishes between sins of the high hand and sins of inadvertency. And it distinguishes between sins that are repented of and sins that are not repented of. It distinguishes, as the Westminster Larger Catechism tells us, that sins are abbreviated by the station of the person committing them, whether they're committed against weak people, etc., 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 all of these things are brought into play. Now, suppose you have a case where a parent brings a 14-year-old boy and says, this 40-year-old man over here seduced our 14-year-old boy. What about that? That's different. Think if I were a judge, I'd probably have the 40-year-old man put to death. 
The 14-year-old boy being underage is guilty of a sin of inadvertency. So you wouldn't put him to death. He's not 20 yet. Notice what it says in Matthew 1.19. Joseph was a just man not willing to make her a public example. That means that part of this is the making of a public example. Now from my reading and understanding of the law, I see that flexibility in it. And so in addressing the question of if our part of America became a theocracy, would we want to bring that over? In the area of sexual crimes, I'm more or less inclined to go along with what was given in the Old Testament. I think if you had the death penalty for adultery, you'd have a whole lot more happy families. So I think you'd have a whole lot less adultery. You'd have a whole lot less divorce. People would learn to get along with each other. And that might be hard to start with, but after a while they'd get along with each other. Because divorce wouldn't really be an option because adultery wouldn't be an option. You'd have a lot more happy people. But remember that small community law. But do you have to? If wife commits adultery, repents, comes to her husband in tears and says, I'm sorry I did this, does he have to have her put to death? I don't see that in the law. Only in the case of murder. A man commits a murder and he cries and weeps and moans and says, I'm sorry, you still got to put him to death. If the husband wants to put the wife to death, I think he has the right. But I don't think he is obliged to do it. You see, that's part of the law. I don't see recognized by Greg. I think it should be recognized. I think it completely contextualizes it. Of course, you're still going to scandalize any number of people by even suggesting that adultery should be criminalized nowadays. But the fact is, it always used to be. Like I said, Hodge and Dabney both maintain that death penalty should be kept on the books for adultery. Not as a requirement in every case, but as a maximum. As the stated penalty. So people are afraid and behave themselves. Religious crimes. Now let me move down. I passed by saying about murder I think we can take for granted. I talked about sexual crimes. And my inclination from my studies, I don't see any reason to change the application of the law from then to now. But I want to take all of it into account and allow the flexibility that's there. Religious crimes, personally, I am inclined to think that we should not punish simple apostasy and idolatry with the death penalty in the New Testament the same way it was in the Old. I think that God has given greater power to the church in the New Testament, that the sword of the Spirit has been given to the church, and that the implication of the New Testament is that God's honor is tied to the church and not to a nation. If God's honor is to be preserved in the Old Testament, you preserved His honor, and He was concerned that His honor be preserved by dealing with public apostates and idolaters. In the New Testament, I think the rule is if the church would deal with these things, they would disappear in society. I think that there is a shift in this area to church discipline, that the sword of fire that you have in the Old Testament is now in the tongues of fire in the New. You'll notice in the Old Testament that these crimes that are religious in character, frequently the fire is involved in. Fire off the altar. Fire from the cherubim flaming sword. In the New Testament, that's pictured as being evangelism and the proclamation of truth which burns up cities. In the Old Testament, Jericho was conquered by the sword. If you look into the book of Acts, you'll find that there are all these parallels between Acts and Joshua that establish that Jerusalem is the new Jericho, and it also is taken by the sword and fire, but in a different way. And these considerations move me over to the side of that strand of Calvinism that says the religious crimes are no longer the civil magistrate's job, they're the job of the church to preach. And the theonomic and theocratic application in that area comes through the work of the church. Now, we've debated this some. What would you do if you had a town and a whole bunch of sons of Belial started printing up tracts and advocating the overthrow of the Christian establishment? 
here and were campaigning hard to get everybody to go out and worship the God of the Mormons, what would you do? And You know, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of situations like that, there are a number of other things that come into play. For instance, if the civil magistrate told them to cool it and they didn't do it, well, then you've got some contumacy involved there. There are other things that can come into play. And I don't know. One can speculate forever about it. But from my studies at where I am right now, this slot in time, and nobody's asking me to tell the government what to do, so I don't really have to settle this. But I'm inclined to think that when it comes to religious crimes, I'm very comfortable with the power of the church enforcing them. I'm not so comfortable with the idea that the state should. I think it's been counterproductive in church history in a way that it wasn't in the Old Testament. When you look at the specifics of it, if a city goes bad, if you're part of the Holy Roman Empire, and one of the provinces in Germany went into idolatry, and you applied the Old Testament law. What that means is you've got to go through there and kill every man and every woman that's ever lain with a man and only keep the girls that are virgins alive. That's what the law says to do in that case. And in Christian history, you almost never have anything like that going on. So if you have the death penalty for apostasy, it's kind of an all-or-nothing deal, and it's awfully radical. And for 2,000 years, the Spirit hasn't been moving the church in that way of evangelism and maintenance. Consider the fact that in the Old Testament, the kingdom was established that way. And then it was maintained that way. It was established by the sword and by burning up cities with altar fire. And it was maintained that way. If cities went bad, they were burned up with altar fire. In the New Testament, the kingdom comes in its essence in a religious dimension a different way comes through evangelism, and I think it's maintained through gospel witness. So I'm much more reluctant in this area of religious crimes. And I disagree with Bonson. I think we can easily distinguish between the religious crimes on the one hand and the social crimes on the other. And the religious crimes, I'm not convinced we ought to be advocating the death penalty for. Those are my observations. Surely that does not settle everything in everyone's mind. If you feel like all the answers are there, then I've failed. Because part of this is to say... We clearly must apply the Bible and not natural law or anything else to the state. That includes the penalties that God revealed in the Old Testament for Israel. But we've got a lot of work to do. And the theonomic position is very neat and very simple, but it hasn't really addressed the questions very well, and we've just got to do a better job. And until we have the several hundred competent Christian scholars at Parenthood or wherever we're going to be, all debating and discussing these things, I think there will be a lot of loose ends. But I think we just live with that. I know for a fact that on the day we stand before kings, we'll know what to say. Jesus says, when you do, you'll know what to say. Joseph knew what to say when he stood before a king. Daniel knew what to say when he stood before a king. But frankly, I don't think we're ready to stand before the kings. And when we are, we'll know what to say. Right now, we need to do a lot of thinking. So that's my challenge, and I hope I haven't disquieted you too much, but I hope I've encouraged you. And there's good literature I can recommend my own studies, although they're technical. I recommend Vern Poitras' book, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses, although I disagree with some sections of it. He will certainly make you think about all kinds of things. In the area of sexual crimes, he raises a lot of tough questions. Is it true that a woman was put to death for adultery, but not a man? The law seems to imply that in the Old Testament. He feels that is what it says. I'm not sure he's right. But there are a lot of tough questions about the specifics that he raises, other people raise, and he's an insider to the theocratic position, so we want to read that study. Now, I haven't succeeded in running out the clock, so I guess I'll have to take some more questions, if there are any. Peter. I had a couple questions. One is about your, your definition of the judicial law. 